Hello. Um, I think I pretty much know everyone, but if you don't know me, my name is Christina. I have not lectured yet this year. This is my first time in almost a full year since having a baby last winter. Um, so really starting off with an easy text here to jump back in after maternity leave. I was grateful for this scheduling. Um, yeah, yeah, thanks. Okay, so let's just get started. Um, knowing or not knowing how a story ends totally transforms the way you experience it, right? Um, isn't that what makes life so hard sometimes? When we don't know how something is going to end up, it can give us paralysis when it comes to making decisions. Um, it makes it hard to stay motivated to work hard. Um, you know, some of the hardest parts of life are wondering how something is going to turn out, right, when the ending is uncertain. Is God going to cure this cancer? Um, is he going to bring you a spouse? Is he going to, you know, save your children? Um, is he going to provide you that dream job, right? Those are some of the hardest moments of life. Conversely, when we do know how something is going to end, we are more motivated to work hard and feel more freedom to live life. Um, knowing the end of a story changes how we experience it. Okay, I have two examples. For example, this summer, I watched the Chernobyl, the HBO miniseries, which was phenomenal. I'd recommend it to anyone. Um, it's about the 1968 nuclear accident at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Ukraine. So I knew before I started watching it that the nuclear reactor core melted down, spoiler alert, and exploded and killed 237 people on impact, exposed thousands others to radiation exposure, which led to cancer, which killed people many years later, and even like birth defects and like babies were born stillborn. It was, it's just awful, y'all. Horrifying realities. Um, it impacted the environment. Like people still can't go there without like fully um, dressing up and all this gear, right? Um, so knowing how awful the explosion was and the ramifications of it made it almost unbearable to sit through HBO beautifully tell the horrifying story of how it happened, right? Because um, you're watching these people, these leaders, force uh, dangerous reactor tests in reckless and irresponsible ways, and then they lie and they keep telling these firefighters to come in and these first responders that there's just a fire and they need to come put it out. And you're just, I was just so angry, right? Because I know that, like, that's not true. That's not what's happening. And they're just asking all these people to, like, come to their certain death, basically. Um, I was angry because I knew the horrible and unjust outcome of the story, right? Okay, on the opposite end, I recently read Rachel Den Hollander's new memoir, What is a Girl Worth?, which I would also totally recommend. Um, she's the woman who went first went public with her story of abuse at the hands of Larry Nassar when the 2016 USA Gymnastics scandal broke. Um, and the story is really hard to read. It's about how she was groomed and abused in plain view of her unsuspecting mother. But it was much easier to get through because by the time she wrote the memoir, Nasser had already been sentenced to 360 years in prison for abusing over 250 girls. Justice had been served, right? It made reading the story and the, of his awful abuse way more endurable. Knowing the ending affects how we experience things. When we know that in the end, good wins and justice will be served, we are more motivated to do good, work hard, and endure difficulties. So this is what we're going to focus on today. How knowing the end shapes our presence as we turn to 2 Thessalonians 2 and discuss some very confusing and challenging topics like the Antichrist and the final judgment. Okay, I'm going to read it because I think it's just helpful to read it all and then we'll dive right in. 
Okay, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the, lawlessness, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonder. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Okay, let's pray really quick. Uh, dear Lord, thank you for using Paul to write this letter so long ago that we might be able to study it today and have confidence in uh, the end of our story. Um, give us humility and open hearts as we delve into this very difficult passage and give us clarity um, about your second coming um, and judging the living and the dead. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Okay, so this is a super complicated and confusing text and topic. Let's just put that out there. Um, I'm not probably not much more confident than y'all are standing up here talking to you today, but I'm, I'm going to try. So, I think, honestly, though, that we, like, we make it harder for ourselves to understand than it needs to be. Um, this is an important passage. It rounds out Paul's three-part eschatology, very seminary for you, found in Thessalonians. Um, so if you all want to know, I could have written it on there for you all, sorry. Part one is in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 17. Part two is in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 10. And then this is part three. So, like... Theologians try to take that as a whole, just so you all know. And I'm going to talk a little bit about each. Um, eschatology is a big word that just means, like, ideas about the end times. Okay? Um, <clears throat> so, honestly, Paul doesn't tell us much detail about the eschaton, or the end times, in this text. But we're going to try our best in this lecture not to make more of the text than what is here. Okay? Paul's big emphasis here. That is consistent through all these three parts in these letters is the inevitability of Christ's return. Christ will return. He will defeat evil and he will judge everyone. And those who do not believe truth will be condemned. And those who do believe the truth and have received salvation in him will obtain glory. This is Paul's whole point. Christ will return. And this inevitability should shape our lives in the present. So briefly in our time together today, we're going to look at this chapter and try to understand it in light of the inevitability of Christ's return and think together about how this future reality might change the way we live our lives today. 
So let's say it again before we get lost in the weeds of this text. (laughs) Christ is returning, and it should change the way we live. Okay? Okay. So I created a basic outline. I'm actually kind of proud of myself for this outline this time, um, for us to navigate the chapter. So I broke it up into three parts, a warning, a correction, and an encouragement. So first, the warning. In the first three verses of the chapter, Paul issues a warning to the Thessalonians. He says, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. And let no one deceive you. Paul is writing this to the Thessalonians in particular, but I think it's very applicable to us today as we delve into this topic. The Thessalonians had received some false teaching between the two letters, first and second, and Paul is writing to correct what they had heard in the meantime. Someone, Paul isn't even sure who or how, had told them that Christ had already returned and they missed it and it didn't really change much. And now, evidently, they were anxious, confused, and doubting if following Jesus was even worth it. Paul starts here, and he returns to this idea twice more because he is certain that it won't be the last time the church is confronted with false ideas about Jesus. And so he exhorts them, don't let everything you hear cause you anxiety or lead you to be deceived. Instead of being immediately anxious or deceived, he calls them to test what they hear against what the apostles have taught them. So in verse 5, later he pleads with the Thessalonians, don't you remember what I taught you about this? And a very relatable verse for me as I parent young children. (laughs) Don't you remember I told you this was going to happen? In verse 15, he exhorts them to stand firm and hold to the traditions that they were taught by by him. Paul's warning for the church then and for us now is that we will encounter false teachings about Jesus. And there is a power at work in the world to deceive. More about that in a second. And he wants them and us to be prepared to hear false teaching and to discern what is true about our Lord. And so, in this spirit, we are going to approach this next section, Paul's corrective teaching about the second advent, the second coming of Christ, seeking to gain preparation about Christ's return, not just engage in speculation about Christ's return, okay? And we must take a deep breath and not allow ourselves to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by how much is actually left unsaid by Paul about the coming of our Lord, okay? So in this vein, I'm going to answer two questions about the next part of this chapter, what do we know about Christ's return, and what do we not know about Christ's return? So in every phase, we're going we're gonna to ask those two questions. It's important to remind ourselves that we, what we don't know, so we don't fall prey to the speculation in the world about Christ's return, but instead can stand strong in what we do know about Jesus' second advent. This really is an act of trust in the sovereignty of God and the sufficiency of Scripture. This is one of those texts where Paul alludes to details that he shared with the Thessalonians in person, but he doesn't include them again in this letter, so they're not preserved to us today. And the question is, for us, as curious as we might be to know what Paul might have said all those years ago, can we trust that the scriptures that we have, that God himself preserved all this time, are sufficient for our salvation? That they include what we need to know about God to know him and to follow him? And in addition to trusting in the sovereignty of God and the sufficiency of Scripture, we must approach interpreting any apocalyptic or prophetic text with great humility. Um, Interpreting prophecy in Jewish apocalyptic literature is really hard. (laughs) Um, A helpful exercise for us, you know, if we're ever starting to feel too confident that we know exactly what Christ's return is going to look like or when it's going to happen, is to uh, go back and look at the four Gospels. Um, have your little study Bible there and note every single time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John that they record that Jesus fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy and then go read that Old Testament prophecy and ask yourself, is there any way I would have guessed that that's how Jesus would have fulfilled that Old Testament prophecy? The answer more than not is, more often than not is no, right? 
Um, that's part of why so many Jews miss Jesus and his first advent is because prophecy is hard to understand. Okay, so we're going to approach this text with that same humility and admit freely what we don't know. So, after warning the Thessalonians to be on guard in the future against false teaching and not to let themselves be deceived, he corrects the false teaching that they heard and states unequivocally, Jesus hasn't come back yet. Y'all didn't miss him. But he is coming back. And he describes what I want to call three phases of the end times or the eschaton or the second advent. I'm going to use all of those terms interchangeably. Um, The first period is I called restraint. The second period is called, I'm calling the rebellion. And then finally, retribution, just to get some alliteration there with our R's. Um, So disclaimer, Paul doesn't address these in chronological order, but I'm going to address them in chronological order because it's my lecture and I get to do what I want. Um, So phase one, the period of restraint. What do we know about this phase? Well, we learn in verse seven that there is a mystery of lawlessness already at work. At the time, Paul was writing to the Thessalonians, and we know that there is also someone working to restrain this mysterious force of lawlessness and the lawless figure it exudes from called the man of lawlessness. More on him in a second. What do we not know? We do not know who, is, who this restraining figure is. People have speculated aplenty throughout the 2,000 years since Paul penned this letter, but the reality is he does not tell us. Evidently, the Thessalonians knew from their time in person with Paul, as we see in verse 6, but God did not deem it necessary for us to know who this person is. At a bare minimum, I think it's safe to say that the restrainer is God's agenda, which is delaying Christ's return. Right? God is sovereign, and he is in charge of all of this stuff. Sometimes, especially in the midst of struggle and difficult times, we're tempted to ask why. Why is God delaying Christ's return? Right? Why is he letting people suffer? I think it's safe to assume that God is delaying Christ's return because he still has work to do. He is saving souls. There are more babies to be born and baptized. He is still adding to the fold. This is motivating for us as we sit here in this present age and wonder, are we just supposed to bide our time until we die or Christ returns? And the answer is no. We're supposed to work, right? Knowing how the story ends and that God is delaying his return intentionally should motivate us to work hard and share the gospel. So back to what we do know. What is this mystery of lawlessness that is already at work in this present age? Um, The present age is like a common term for the time between the two advents, which the Thessalonians were living in and we're still living in now, right? Um, So this force, this mystery of lawlessness was at work then and it's at work now. So the Greek word used here is anomias, anomias, which I don't normally like using Greek, but it's helpful because it's, it's, We still use that word, right? Antinomian. It's very similar to a word we still use today. And it literally means without law or anti-law. So this mysterious power at work isn't a power of disobedience, okay? Disobedience recognizes the law and doesn't obey it, like my children all the time. And me. I'll be fair. Um, But (laughs) this mysterious power just rejects law altogether. Lawlessness does not recognize morality. So unlike the philosophies of all the traditional religions which say there is something outside of mankind, usually a deity, that tells us what is right and what is wrong, the philosophy of lawlessness says, who's to say what is right and wrong? Only I can say what is right or wrong for me. It's important to try to understand this power at work in our present age so we can recognize it for what it is, right? Um, surely Paul includes this for the Thessalonians so that they can make sense of what they are experiencing and be on guard against deception by this mysterious lawlessness. The philosophy, to me, sounds a lot like secular humanism that's become popular uh, popular in the 20th century um, and the moral relativism that's rampant today. 
Um, it reminds me of the common notion that what is right for me can be wrong for you, um, or the mantra today that we're all supposed to live our truth, right? As long as you're living your truth, you're good. Um, this philosophy has seen a rise in political regimes as extremes on both sides of the spectrum, fascism on the right and communism on the left, which both dismiss the notion that violence against humans is inherently wrong, right? And they insert these authoritarians inserting themselves as the author of morality. Um, and so it's kind of easy to see that Paul, that what Paul predicted really is a reality today. There is a mysterious lawlessness at work in the world, and it appears to be growing. The question for us then is, are we allowing ourselves to be deceived by this philosophy in any way? Hopefully I presented a somewhat compelling case that this mystery of lawlessness really is at work in our culture and societies and the world, but the next question is, is it at work in this room, in us? Are we tempted to believe that what we do doesn't really matter? Um, that there isn't really anyone to answer for what is right and what is wrong? Do we justify sin in our lives because of circumstances? Do we base what we think is right or wrong often on how we feel instead of what God tells us? If your answer is yes, like mine, then you are being deceived by the mysterious power of lawlessness. One of the commentators I read said something to the effect that it would be really arrogant to think that we can't be deceived by the master deceiver. And we need to remember that. Paul's warning us, like the Thessalonians, to stand firm and not be deceived. And we need each other in this vein too, right? We don't have to do this alone. To face this mysterious power of lawlessness by ourselves <coughs> would be foolish. God gives us each other to challenge and encourage one another in these areas. So a question for you today is, do you have people in your life making sure that you are living according to the spirit of truth? And a challenge for us today is let's aim to be these types of friends and sisters in Christ who ward off the spirit of lawlessness in each other's lives. Okay, phase two, the rebellion. So what do we know about this phase? Well, according to Paul, at the end of this present age, the time when this mystery of lawlessness is at work and yet being restrained, there will be a rebellion and the man of lawlessness will be revealed. So what do we not know? We actually don't know a lot. We don't know when this is going to happen. We don't know who this person is or will be. And to be, on, to be honest, we don't even know that this will be one single historical figure. Speculation over this phase in particular, in my opinion, has done a lot of damage over the years. Um, people have speculated that the man of lawlessness has been so many historical figures. Many in the early church assumed it was Caesar, leader of the Roman government. Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin were all, of course, identified as Antichrist figures in the 20th century. I think some of the ugliest moments of American evangelicalism is every time a Democrat gets to, you know, wins the presidency and takes over, there's some group out there calling them the Antichrist because they support abortion. Even our church's own doctrinal statement, the Westminster Confession of Faith, okay, y'all? It has been edited very few times. But one of the things that's been edited out of it is that the original writers included their own stab at guessing who the Antichrist was and wrote in the original document that the Pope was the Antichrist. And we have since removed that from publication. <laughs> um, such speculation has led to racist and anti-Semitic ideas and prejudices against Jews in particular, because some interpret the phrase in verse 4 that he will take his seat in the temple of God to be evident that the Antichrist must be a Jew if he has any place being in the temple. And it influences modern-day political decisions by people who think that we can somehow usher in Jesus' return if we reinstate Israel as a nation and Jerusalem as its capital and rebuild this temple because the Antichrist needs to sit on this seat in the temple. And so we have to do our part, obviously, right? 
But the reality is we don't know who this person is and we don't know when Jesus will return. I think when we spend all of our time trying to guess or thinking that we can usher in his return a millisecond sooner than he intends, we focus on the wrong thing. And honestly, I think Satan loves that. (laughs) The promise here for the Thessalonians and for us is that Christ will return and no one is going to miss it. Our focus must be on that. Okay, back to what we do now. We know that this will occur. We also need to take all of Paul's writings together, remember what I said, and put this text alongside the text in 1 Thessalonians 5, where he says Jesus will come like a thief in the night. So the question regarding timing for us appears to be, are we going to be surprised by Jesus' arrival, or will we be able to predict it, as this text seems to be pointing to? Um, I think the answer is both. I think it's important to see here that Paul is not trying to pull out a calendar, right, and say, like, this is the date, and this is the person, and this is when he's going to come back. Instead, he's trying to show the Thessalonians, and we can attest to the validity of his knowledge now, 2,000 years later, that there was more history to occur before Jesus comes back. He's showing them, y'all didn't miss it, I promise. And if you don't believe me, well, let me just tell you, like, God's got some more work to do. And so it's not going to happen tonight in your sleep. You're the first fruits. You're the, this is the beginning of the church. And God is doing this. He's trying to show them that there's more history that's going to occur. He's giving them these signs of Christ's return and showing them that, that God has more work to do before Jesus comes back. Now concerning the man of lawlessness, we do know that the man of lawlessness will appear amidst a rebellion of some kind and that Jesus will kill him immediately with his breath upon appearing. It's important to know before we start talking about him because he's kind of (laughs) scary. It's generally understood that the man of lawlessness Paul refers here to is the same figure as one John calls the Antichrist in 1 John. It is safe to say that he is the culmination of evil, um, the personification of this mysterious power of lawlessness. He is a deceiver, according to verse 10, who has great power, false signs, and wonder, according to verse 9. Um, honestly, like I said, we don't know if it'll be a single historical figure. We don't know if it'll be a group, a movement, a political force, a philosophical force. We just don't know. But we do know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that he will be revealed for all to see. And before we fear him too much, like I said, that Jesus will kill him immediately upon his return. In the end, Jesus will win. So now for phase three, retribution. This is the phase where Jesus will judge the living and the dead, as we say in the Apostles' Creed. Paul turns his attention away from those evil forces at work in our world and toward the people that they prey upon. And he describes how they are deceived by the man of lawlessness and refuse to love truth and thus be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion and they believe the lies that the Antichrist is selling and they are condemned by God as those who do not believe truth, but instead had pleasure in unrighteousness. But for those who believe the truth and have pleasure in righteousness, they will be judged on the merits of Jesus and obtain the glory of the Lord. We see this in verses 13 and 14. Paul says to the Thessalonians that God chose them to be the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. To this salvation, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is using this section to contrast the ending for those who belong to Christ from those who do not. You see, there are two present forces at work in the world that both see their culmination in the eschaton. One is the mystery of lawlessness, which seeks to deceive those who are perishing, and the other is the sacrificial love of God. I think it's important to note here that everyone is dealt with, okay? Paul doesn't mince words. It can be hard to read about the coming judgment for those who are perishing, but there are only two groups here. Um, 
you know, the Thessalonians thought that they were like this third group that like missed it somehow. And the Left Behind series, I don't know if y'all have ever read that. I read it all as a child, which makes me kind of angry now. Um, but it's, it's the same idea that there's like this third group of people that like somehow just like won't know that any of this occurred. And like, anyway, I'm not going to get into like the period of tribulation and all that arguing. But this text doesn't really leave room for that. There's two groups of people. One that's being judged and condemned and one that's being judged and obtains the glory of God. Um, no one's going to miss it. You can't miss Jesus' return. Not those in Christ and not those outside of Christ. Everyone will know. The man of lawlessness will know. Everyone will know, right? Um, we don't need to do a bunch of calculations and speculation about when this is going to happen or who these figures will be because we will know. He's going to judge every single person. The coming of our Lord will be so big that it will be unmissable. Okay, so I've labeled the final section of this chapter encouragement. In the last few verses, Paul encourages the Thessalonians to stand firm and to hold to the traditions that they've been taught by him because they are brothers beloved by the Lord, the first fruits to be saved, chosen by God himself, and will obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, knowing the end, that Jesus that the Lord returns and Christ prevails over evil and enacts justice on the wicked, and knowing that all of those in Christ will be gathered up to him to obtain his glory changes how we live today. The imminent end gives significance to life in this present age. The inevitability of God's people obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus shapes our present life. It gives us eternal comfort amidst affliction, hope through grace, and enables us to do every good work and word, as Paul prays in 16 and 17. Remember what we know about the Thessalonians. They were experiencing intense persecution, right? Um, they were in the middle of a bunch of hate. Their families had, like, disowned them. They couldn't even find employment. I'm pretty sure they were, like, physically being beaten, jailed, killed even. Um, so Paul found it utterly necessary to correct the idea that they had missed Jesus' second advent and assure them of their salvation and his inevitable return. In the face of much hardship, this is what Paul knew, needed, knew they needed to hear because we live differently when we know how the story ends. But as we see here in these final verses of chapter 2, it isn't just head knowledge, okay? It's not just like, okay, get got to figure this out in my head. Throughout his writings, Paul is clear that he believes in what the theologians like to call the already but not yet, right? So he believes that Christ has already come and ushered in salvation for those who believe, but has not yet defeated evil for good. But he believes the reality of our future glory bears on our life already in a spiritual way in a way that is active and alive and living and changes you, right? Not just like inserts knowledge into your head. We get glimpses and tastes of the coming glory that enable us to stand firm and hold to the traditions we've been taught. You see, when you are a beloved child of God, your heart changes from lawless to law-loving, and you are motivated to obey and follow Christ. So this changes all the aspects of our life. Knowing how the story ends, that we will obtain the glory of the Lord and God will enact justice on all evil and iniquity, changes us. Living in the reality of the resurrection and the coming of Christ means that we are free to follow Jesus and obey him. So it begs the question, how does the, assur how does the assurance of the glorious return of Jesus change your life? What are you tempted right now not to obey? Where are you tempted not to obey God's law? And how does this knowledge and assurance for you to do so um knowing how the story ends for unbelievers i just want to add this um katie brought it up in the leaders meeting and i thought it was helpful um she was saying like sometimes like this knowledge can like pit people against each other right like unbelievers and believers like we know the truth and you don't 
but it, it really should humble us, right, and motivate us to share the gospel with people. Like I said, like God is still working, and we're called to that same work. Like we're we live in the in the present age, the the time between the advents, right? Um, so we should want to share the gospel with our unbelieving friends and speak truth to the lawlessness and and believe that God is capable of changing dead hearts just like he changed ours. It should not lead us to arrogance. Confidence is not arrogance, okay? I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, and it should humble us and, and give us tender hearts. So knowing how the story ends changes us today, right? In addition to enabling us to obey Jesus more and more, knowing how the story ends can bring us more patience today with other people and with ourselves. Um, it can bring us joy in our suffering like it did for the Thessalonians. Um, so a question for us to reflect on today is, um, like, what are we not willing to wait for? Uh, waiting on Jesus is to change us or to change our loved ones um, is often really extremely challenging. Um, we grow really impatient with Jesus when we watch loved ones sin or struggle or refuse to change, right? So how might the assurance of Jesus' return change the way we wait for him to work in our lives or the lives of our loved ones? Um, how does the inevitability of Christ's return enable you to be more faithful in the present? How does it reshape your loves? How does it change the way you view your time, your money, your resources? All of the boldest saints throughout history, um, some that come to mind are Martin Luther, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. They were all very sure of where they were heading, right? That was the only way they could do the brave things that they did. It gave them courage to stand up to a church teaching, you know, wrong things. It gave them courage to break the civil law for Bonhoeffer and MOK often, right? It gave them, they were so sure of God's sovereignty and his goodness and that his justice would reign. And it's what enabled them and emboldened them to face these trials and persecutions and struggles, right? And they did it with courage and strength and they obeyed God's law above even the other laws in their lives that they could correctly see were, were law, actually, in fact, lawless, right? Because they were unjust. Um, they feared God, their judge, more than man, and they fought for truth and justice and righteousness. And like the Thessalonians and these saints before us, we need to rest assured in Jesus' triumphant return and allow this assurance to change our lives. That's it. Go in peace. <laughs>